What's up? What's up? This is Zach Boschman checking in. You are locked into the Citizen Truth podcast, and we are so excited to have Heather Ann Thompson on the podcast today. The book is Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and Its Legacy. Heather, let's get right into it. Why write a history of the Attica Prison Uprising? Um, I believe I heard in other interviews that this took you something like 10 years to write, you know, so why devote so much time and research to creating this, this book? Uh, well, uh, for starters, it was really clear to me that this was a story that was relevant to today. Uh, it, we have more people in prison in this country than any other country on the planet. And it was pretty clear that there was a reason that dated back uh, somewhere in our past. And I wanted to know what maybe a civil rights protest that happened back in 1971 had to do with the fact that we became the world's largest jailer and why it was that we as a nation didn't really know anything about this event other than we had this idea that people that were in prison were the worst of the worst, uh, that people in Attica in particular, this one prison were the worst of the worst. And yet this uprising had been to improve basic human rights. So how had we gotten this story quite so wrong? Like how had we come to this conclusion that prisoners were the worst when uh, what they had wanted was to be treated better? So it was just from this journey to figure out what had happened uh, so many years ago. And you're right, it took forever. It was actually about 13 years. And, wow. um, and the reason was because it turns out that uh, what happened there was a pretty egregious story of, uh, of murder uh, on the part of state officials, of a cover-up, of, of a really every effort to make sure the American people were not aware of both how bad the conditions were, but also how far the state of New York would go and really state officials uh, beyond that would go to make sure that uh, we didn't know what had happened. Um, so it was a long, it took a long time to really to, to figure out what was going on. That's amazing. I want to get into all those uh, topics. Um, but first, take me back to 1971 in Attica prison. What was life like for the, the inmates of Attica? Who were the inmates of Attica? Uh, just give me a little background. Well, so Attica was back in 71, very much like a lot of prisons are today. It was a remote uh, prison. Uh, it was a maximum security prison. By the way, it still exists today. The same, it looks exactly the same today as it did then. Uh, in upstate New York, very near Buffalo, uh, off the New York State Thruway. And it was filled with men largely from the big cities, uh, New York City and its boroughs, uh, Buffalo, uh, Rochester, Syracuse, overwhelmingly black men, overwhelmingly uh, men, you know, Puerto Rican men, Latino men, black men, um, and overwhelmingly a place with white guards. Uh, the men in there were there because of drug addiction, because they were poor, did not have the money for really good lawyers. Um, some were there for quote unquote uh, serious crime. Some were there because they were uh, unable to get good lawyers. Some were there because they were there on parole violations. Some were there because they were old men. Some were there because they were young men. But all of them were there simply to serve time and yet we're experiencing a whole lot more punishment than that, such as uh, being fed on uh, 63 cents a day, far too little food. Um, 
being given uh, a roll of toilet paper a month, uh, being uh, given such substandard medical care that people would lose all their teeth when they were there, um, uh, get septicemia, lose uh, lose all kinds of um, you know health, lose years off their life really because they were inadequately cared for. So these are the conditions that really mount uh, over time, and these men try to bring attention to them. They try to write letters to their state senator. They try to, um, you know, basically beg for some form of remedy uh, going through the system. And by the way, uh, the guards themselves who are these, you know, really uh, untrained white kids from upstate New York who don't have any other choice but to work in the prison, there's no other jobs up there, um, they too recognize that this place is not good. They're being worked way too many hours with too little training. Um, and they too were complaining. They're saying, look, this place is terrible. We need to do something. So between the guards saying this thing is terrible, we need to do something. And the prisoners saying this thing is terrible. Everyone knew it. Uh, but prison management is doing nothing. Um, and Albany Department of Corrections is doing nothing. So again, an eerily similar situation to today. Everyone knows it's a crisis. Nobody's doing anything. So uh, take me to September 9th. How did the uprising start? Well, uh, it basically starts, believe it or not, uh, a bit accidentally, which is to say that uh, it was a day like many other days, lots of tense emotions, lots of uh, uh, anything probably could have sparked it. But uh, as often happened, uh, prison management makes a decision on this day that is pretty ill-fated. It, it just so happens that it is made, it makes a decision when the men are coming back from breakfast to essentially lock them in this yard, uh, in this tunnel going back. They should have gone out to wreck. They don't go out to wreck. The management wants them to go back into their cells. And because of this decision, which they don't tell the guards what's going to happen, they don't tell the prisoners what's going to happen, um, panic ensues. And because people are panicking, they start backing away from each other. Um, they start, uh, a fight breaks out. And essentially what happens is this gate opens uh, because it has a faulty weld at the top. And to make a very long story short, complete chaos erupts. And in those first few moments, it is really a riot. That is to say, chaos. Uh, nothing is planned. People are getting hurt. Uh, men are grabbing guards as hostages as a matter of self-protection. But then what happens is that uh, people begin to realize that if they don't do something, if they don't move out to the outside, if they don't get a hold of this thing, it will be not only dangerous, but that it's a missed opportunity to really bring the world outside's attention to what's going on inside. And so they do. Uh, the, the, the men inside, the cooler heads prevail. They move the whole operation essentially outside into one yard, D yard, and thus begins what is not a riot. It's really a protest. It, it's really what we call the Attica uprising or you know, rebellion of 1971. And, um, and that starts that morning, which about 1300 men out in D-Yard. Um, and that's when the whole thing starts. They, they elect men to speak for them out of each yard. They set up a, 
um, a negotiating table and, um, and the hostages who are guards and civilian employees that they've taken, you know, they surround them uh, with uh, two circles of prisoners to make sure they're protected. And, um, and thus it begins for the next four long days and four long nights. Yeah, so you talk a lot about the the camaraderie uh, that was developed um, at that moment in in uh, in the yard. Um, it's and you you talk about how they elected leaders, et cetera. Um, what demands did they uh, come out with um, after that deliberation? Well, it's interesting. There was a series of demands. There was a, you know, a process of getting to the demands. Like I said, they they had a, a series of elections where each cell block sent representatives effectively to the to the negotiating table, and and through that process, they had they actually had a, a bullhorn up at the table where every discussion was um, translated in Spanish, for example, so that even the guys who spoke Spanish would understand what was going on. And through that process, they whittled it down. There was a, there was, for example, a sort of a, a group of demands that would then become the quote unquote, 15 practical demands. And then ultimately there came out of that a, a series of even more specific demands, 28 demands, uh, that would then be negotiated with the state. But ultimately, the way to understand the demands is that they were all very practical demands, things like uh, improve medical care, um, improve the, the rules surrounding parole. You know, this is a place that if you got parole, um, the rules were so capricious. You know, you were given an old phone book and told basically write to somebody and get a job. Uh, and you couldn't get out till you got a job. And, you know, how are you going to write to somebody? I mean, it was, it was a crazy system. So these were the kinds of demands. Um, uh, improve the end, end, end slave labor was a demand. In other words, pay people for the work that they did inside. So very practical. And um, and really a response to the poor conditions inside were, were, the, were the crux of the demands. One of the very important demands, though, that becomes very important is the demand for amnesty. That is to say, uh, let us give up uh, when it is time. Let us surrender. But the state must agree not to uh, hurt us physically and not to charge us with all manners of crimes for having uh, had these negotiations with you, for having had this uprising. And that will become the ultimate sticking point in this with the state of New York. Um, so how did the uh, authorities, uh, state of New York, et cetera, um, respond to those demands? Well, it's interesting. I think that, you know, there's the story that we thought what, what we thought happened, and then the story that I learned happened over the course of doing the book. Uh, for a long time, what the story everyone thought was, is that the state of New York had really bargained in very, very good faith, and that uh, it was uh, really, uh, you know, that the prisoners were being unreasonable, they were holding out and holding out and that the state had virtually agreed to everything and that the, that the prisoners should have just, you know, not kept holding out, they should have surrendered by about day three or four and that this whole thing could have just ended. And particularly because 
In addition to this negotiating uh, going on between state officials and prisoners, there was an entire observers committee. The prisoners had asked people to come in to kind of oversee this and represent them. And the state officials had people on that observers committee kind of representing them. And so you had a lot of eyeballs on this. And, and we kind of thought at the time that, you know, what's the problem here? Why can't this thing just end? Well, in the course of doing the research, I got to see all kinds of documents and, and really it began to become clear to me that the state had no intention really of negotiating this and having this end peacefully. So in fact, yes, the state does respond on paper to all of these demands fairly favorably. But it's, we now know that there was a lot of caveats in the language. There was a, there was a way in which this probably was not going to turn out very well for them had they, had they uh, surrendered, number one. Number two, the only reason why state officials had not gone in with force right away was because they essentially couldn't. These observers were there and it would have been very ugly and it, you know, it was gonna take some time to sort of clear it out so that they could go in with force. And, and, and really, uh, I think ultimately, um, this issue of the amnesty was not just a matter of could the, could the prisoners give up without being harmed? You know, uh, the state of New York was not going to let these prisoners get away with this. It's just so clear in retrospect. Um, for one thing, a guard had died uh, in the earliest stages of this moment when the prison comes under prisoner power, as I described it as a riot, it was complete chaos. A guard had been overrun in those initial early hours. And even though there was no clear evidence of who had harmed him, so many people had trampled over his body, had harmed him, had kicked him. There's no way to know who had done it. The prisoners wanted amnesty so that they would all not be charged with felony murder. That's another key reason they wanted amnesty. But once that happened, the state of New York was, you know, they knew that that would be enough to kind of just unleash the police on them on that, on that final day. And they were never gonna give up. They were never gonna let them give up, that's clear. And I think it's also clear that the governor, Governor Rockefeller, was so hell-bent on becoming the president one day, was so hell-bent on showing the Republican party that he was tough on crime that he wasn't also going to give up to these prisoners. But we didn't know that at the time. What it looked like at the time was the prisoners were just holding out, the state was being reasonable. And so it was a dicey moment that it looked like they were negotiating in good faith. A very long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> so the, um, the state unfortunately does decide to go in with force, I believe September 13th, right? Um, right. Talk Talk to me about that decision and uh, how that played out. Well, so imagine that on the four long days and nights while these negotiations are going on and the observers are trying to facilitate these negotiations. Meanwhile, outside of the prison, there are uh, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of troopers coming from every state trooper battalion all over the state of New York. Uh, they are descending on Attica. They are joined by park police and um, sheriffs and corrections officers from every prison in upstate New York. And 
for the same four days and four nights, these officers are there uh, getting no sleep, getting riled up on these um, rumors and innuendos being fed to them by the FBI that the hostages inside are being tortured. And, and these guys are passing out weapons indiscriminately. Nobody's writing down serial numbers. Uh, people are just itching to get inside. They are itching to exact revenge. And the observers are basically telling the governor's office, do not let these guys come in and retake this prison. And they don't mince words. They say, it's gonna be a massacre if you do. Um, there's gotta be a way to end this, keep negotiations going, anything but that. And then on the fifth morning, as you say, September 13th, early in the morning, they go, the state officials go to the, the gate, uh, a gate uh, that they had gone to every morning. And they basically say to the prisoners, as they had every morning, um, you know, it's time to surrender, give up the hostages, it's time to end this thing. And, um, and as every morning, the prisoners basically said, we'll take it back to our guys, you know, and, you know, basically we'll take a vote. No, thanks, thanks, but no, we'll keep negotiations going. Because now I found the document that shows that they were deliberately told not to give the guys inside an ultimatum. So, right, so the guys inside think negotiations are still going on. And what they didn't know was that the governor was about ready to send in about 300 heavily armed state troopers. And so imagine the scene, it's, you know, a cold chilly rain is falling over Diard. it's early in the morning. And all of a sudden the guys hear a helicopter start to, to fly over their heads. And they're so naive, they think that maybe Rockefeller is coming. Uh, they hear the chopper and, and actually a cheer kind of goes up because they think, oh my God, maybe he's coming. Maybe he's coming to help end this thing. And then the helicopter leaves. And so then they get panicked because they realize, no, that's not what's happening. And then they realize the observers aren't there and, and they, they start to get very, very scared. And they decide to do something that they had talked about. It was kind of their last ditched effort uh, if the state was gonna come in. And that was, they were gonna take some of the hostages up on these catwalks that overlaid the yard. And they were gonna surround each each hostage, which with um, a prisoner with kind of a makeshift weapon, uh, you know, a, a you know one of those like a, 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 something carved into a knife or something, and they would kind of hold the the hostage up with this. Basically, if the helicopter was going to come back over, they were going to you know hold the hostage up and and with this motion, basically saying, "Look, if you're coming in, you're putting your own men in jeopardy." because they had this naive idea that the state of New York would not come in if it meant saving its own employees. And of course the guys up on the catwalk, even the hostages at this point, they're terrified because they don't even believe their lives are gonna be worth saving if it comes to this. And right when they do this, uh, another helicopter comes over and it starts to drop canisters of CN and CS gas, which is like a tear gas which is actually a powder and it just mows them down. It goes into their mucous membranes. They start vomiting and choking and they're nauseated and they fall over. And right then when everyone is blinded and they can't see and they're falling over, all of these heavily armed troopers with gas masks start off 
and they come out onto the catwalks and start shooting. And for 15 minutes, all you can hear is a uh, helicopter circling overhead on a megaphone saying, surrender with your hands up and you won't be harmed over and over and over again to the sound of bullets flying. And within 15 minutes, it's carnage. 128 men shot multiple times, uh, 39 men dead or dying, both both prisoners and uh, hostages. And then the state of New York steps out in front of the prison and says that something completely different happened. It tells the American people that the prisoners killed the hostages. And from that moment on, uh, a cover-up begins that, um, that is really goes to explain all kinds of things, not the least of which why the nation turns against prisoners, why the nation embraces mass incarceration, and why it took so long to write the book, because that story was pretty hard to then unwind uh, once it got told. Talk to me a, a little bit about that process of uh, finding, you know, the truth. Uh, I assume there's a lot of FOIAs. Um, well, was it difficult to find these original documents that told the, the full story of what actually happened? Yeah, well, it was um, it was really a humbling uh, process, I have to say, and I can by no means take even a fraction of the credit for it. Um, when I started this book, I was so naive. Historians, that's my training. I'm a historian. You know, we are trained. We go into the archives. We uh, we we uh, you know ask for box thirty, you know, folder twelve. We we piece together stories from the archives and. And in this case, there was no archive because the state of New York basically had sealed all of the relevant records related to Attica. And so from the very beginning, it was a, it was a question of asking essentially who had the copy of whatever the state of New York had or who, who had the original. And I could never have found that material without the goodwill of the survivors telling their stories, both the prisoner survivors, the uh, hostage guard survivors, their families, the judges, the lawyers who had kept everything. Um, there, there, was, there were so many people that were determined to keep telling their stories and keep it alive. And of course, like with any cover-up, uh, there are people who are traumatized, even the people who committed the harm. And so eventually people break and they eventually start, you know, people start to tell pieces of that story and eventually documents start to find their way out. And I also uh, had the very good fortune that in 1976, and we all, you know, American history had the good fortune of an extraordinary man by the name of Malcolm Bell, who became a whistleblower in 1976, and he really blew the lid off of a lot of this in 1976. He couldn't name the names of the people who had committed so much harm, but he was able to at least identify that there had been this cover-up. So for me, it allowed me then to start, at least knew what I was looking for. And then I had an incredible stroke of good luck, which is that I happened upon a cache of records that I don't think anyone knew were there. And uh, I was able to find documents that, that really did 
identify people who had remained protected for years and was able to to show things like that an ultimatum had not been given um, and really critical pieces of information that showed that, for example, in, you know, in the in the weeks and months after this retaking, that there had been a series of secret meetings at the governor's pool house in his estate where he and members of law enforcement, the same ones who had retaken this prison and killed so many people, and the attorney general, I mean, that they got together and, and basically had these secret meetings where they got their stories straight, where they did this, you know, where they, where they uh, created a timeline. Um, you know, the American people didn't know this. And had it not been for, you know, people's goodwill and a series of, you know, strokes of good luck, we still wouldn't know this story. And there's much we still don't know. But that, that is, a, is a scary proposition when we think of what the consequences of that was, which is, or were, which is that, you know, the nation, which in 1970 was for prisoner rights, if you look at polling data, against the death penalty, we were in the process of decarcerating. We really felt that the idea of warehousing people was probably a bad idea. In the wake of Attica, being told that prisoners had, you know, slit guards' throats and castrated them and did all the horrible things that we were told happened at Attica, you know, a generation turns against prisoner rights. And we abandon the idea that, you know, the people who we send uh, to prison uh, are human beings. And the consequences of this have been really, really terrible. This year is the 50th anniversary of Attica. It is a time, I think, for us to really ask how it is that 50 years after Attica, uh, we still have two and a half million people behind bars and we still actually have worse conditions in uh, most American prisons than we did in many of them in 1971, because we got this so wrong. So, you know, there's a lot to account for, I think. Uh, do you know specifically what conditions are like in Attica today? You said it still looks the same from the outside. Uh, do you know what conditions are like inside today? Well, yeah. I mean, the last time I was physically in there myself was in 2004. But um, I do know that, you know, there have been really brutal uh, events that have taken place there much more recently than that. One of the really severe cases of abuse happens there much more recently. There's a, you can read an article in the New York Times by a really wonderful writer, Tom Robbins, who wrote about a guy, George Williams, who was so badly beaten by the guards in one of the tiers that he was, you know, kicked down flights of stairs, barely barely made it out alive had it not been for a nurse in Attica who essentially insisted that he be taken to the hospital, we wouldn't know about his story. Um, you know, the, 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 the amount of time that people do in segregation in Attica is horrific and inhumane. I mean, thank God the state of New York has just recently passed this law that is putting um, a limitation on solitary confinement, but but this is, you know, this is uh, 50 years too late and also too little. You can still be in there 15 days, but but nevertheless, something. Um, there is, you know, Attica is a trauma site 
And when you have this much overcrowding, when human beings can be kept in cages 23 hours a day for you know, days and weeks and months on end, we forget something really, really important that no matter what somebody did to land them in prison, juries in this country and under this criminal justice system in our constitution, sentence people to time away. That is what our system does. That is what a prison is. We do not sentence them to all the gratuitous punishment on top of that. So everything else that comes on top of that, the abuse, the starvation, the deprivation, the solitary confinement, the, you know, the, the physical assaults, the rapes, the everything that happens on top of that is nothing that a jury sentences anyone to. And we kind of forget that as part of our culture. So, so that, is, that is what you know, we know to be the case today, that that has all gotten much worse, not to mention the fact that people do much more time in terms of how many years they go away. Um, the prison population in 1970 compared to today, if we went back there, if we just simply went to the prison numbers that we had in 1971 that we, that, you know, that we had then, we'd have to let out about a million and a half people from jail right now. So just to give you some perspective. So when I say it's worse, by that I mean that we have abandoned some of the basic civil rights that we had embraced even back in 1971. And to, to understand that, you have to understand uh, that, that Attica was the cry for help, that rather than hear it, we instead said, no, something really different happened there. Those guys were animals. They killed the hostages. It didn't happen. It just didn't happen. And because we didn't get the history right, uh, we took a really terrible, terrible turn in terms of our policy. Heather, thank you so much for writing this book. Everybody, make sure you go get it. Blood in the water. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for talking about the book today. Zach Boschman here, co-owner of CitizenTruth.org. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Citizen Truth Podcast. The intro and outro song is Enthusiast by Tours and is provided via the Creative Commons license. Please subscribe and check us out at CitizenTruth.org.